Hey everyone, welcome back to another season of Data Driven Health Radio. I'm your host, Dave Korsunsky. On this show, we speak to the experts and break down the technology and the data that is allowing us to measure, optimize, and understand our health in ways that have never been possible before. This show is for the health hackers, the data nerds, the athletes, the execs, the high performers, and anyone looking to take their health and their game to the next level. Be sure to check out our website and our health analytics app at headsuphealth.com and feel free to shoot us an email, support at headsuphealth.com with any comments, questions, or feedback on this show or our app. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and let's get into our next episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Data Driven Health Radio. I'm your host, Dave Korsunsky. I have my new co-host, Mr. TJ Anderson. TJ, good to see you, sir. Great to be here. Yeah, and we have Megan Ramos today joining us and a really, really in-depth episode on metabolic therapy, specifically on how to successfully implement fasting as part of a metabolic health approach. We've been doing a ton of work with Megan, and uh, I'm a huge fan of yours, Megan. We've kind of been rolling in the same circles for years, and we've never (laughs) really crossed paths on a podcast before. So I think this is long overdue. And uh, welcome to the show. Give us a brief introduction here, and then we want to deep dive into the amazing work you guys are doing. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, DJ. And thanks for having me on today. So I'm based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I co-founded what was first known as the Intensive Dietary Management Program with my longtime colleague, Dr. Jason Fung. He wrote a couple popular books that some doctors listening to this podcast or health practitioners might have heard of, The Obesity Code, The Diabetes Code, The Complete Guide to Fasting. He's been busy. So we started this in-house program on fasting, but it blew up. Like we suddenly had a two-year wait list for just Canadians, and we had a stack of referrals or requests that were as tall as I am. I'm, I'm five foot tall. It doesn't say much, but it's pretty. That's still an impressive stack of applications. <laughs> And these are for people from like all over the world, like countries that I didn't even know existed. Like just all of these like little places, like I think the obesity codes in like over 30 languages now. And they just wanted to come to Canada to get help. And started signing simultaneously. I started dating my now husband. He's American. And I learned just about like the American healthcare system and like how lucky I was in Canada, especially with the cost of medications in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And we thought, okay, how do we make this program more accessible to people who don't have healthcare like we do here in Canada? So we really moved everything in online. First, we just started with fasting coaching. Then that snowballed to building a support community to just like this full-blown-out online program. And then we've added in even behavioral coaching over the years. We no longer do anything in clinic. It's all online. We've moved our our clinic patients all online as well. And it's just so much more helpful. When we saw patients in clinic, like we could see them at the most once a month every six weeks and and that was pushing it. But were they going to get support in the meantime or get reinforcement of that education? So building the online program, the online community has been such a a blessing for them and for us because we can really see them thrive, which is amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. I can't imagine trying to get to appointments in the greater Toronto area, especially during rush hour. <laughs> so, it's not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, for those who are listening, we're in a little bit of a transition 
with the show. And we're, we're really starting to educate more on how other practitioners can start to use a lot of the technology out there with their clients and how they can start to implement a lot of programs like fasting and ketogenic therapy and nutritional therapy to work on a lot of chronic health issues. So I'll share a bit about what I'd love to get into on this show. And and TJ has a background in behavior change and behavior modification. So I'm sure he's going to want to drill into that part of it. But I'd really want to focus on how you would speak to other clinics, other practitioners. They're starting to hear about fasting from their clients. There's so many people out there doing it. If we just judge by the number of users on the fasting apps, it's an incredibly popular trend. And I'm sure there's a lot of practitioners out there wondering how to use it, maybe even how to get started testing it themselves. I know we were joking before the call that a lot of the times the doctors actually end up as your customers <laughs> first. You know, yeah. we had this old saying at my uh, my old job in Silicon Valley, you have to eat your own dog food before you can mm-hmm. serve it to the dog. So in some respects, I'm sure a lot of practitioners want to know, like, how do I do this on myself first? Like, it's a psychological battle when you're starting to do this fasting because we're so pre-programmed. Anyhow, long story short, what I'd love to start with, Megan, is how you would approach practitioners who are, who are getting questions from their clients about what this is, about how to use it in practice, and where would a practitioner even start to get rolling? Yeah, so I think fasting is friendly for practitioners, especially those that don't have a lot of time, because it's simple. Like, don't eat. Like, there's a rule. Like, don't eat, have some water, you know, have a cup of green tea, have a cup of bone broth. You just don't eat. So it's pretty simple for practitioners who just don't have a lot of time. Like you just fast. Like you don't have to go in depth on fat and macros and healthy fats and healthy carbs. All that goes out the window. It's so simple. It is very simple. You're not asking your patients to do more. You're asking them to do less. You're not asking them to get special subscriptions, buy a special diet, go buy a special membership. Like you're saving them money until they have to go buy new clothes because they've lost weight. But like it really simplifies things. So I think people get so overwhelmed with what they're not going to do when they start fasting or or complications, how it might affect their lifestyle. You know, who's going to cook for my kids? What about eating dinner with my spouse? Just thinking about the positives. Like it's just easier sometimes not to eat than to reinvent your diet, especially when you have that heavy mental fog from all the inflammation going on, all the diabetes, the metabolic issues. It is really the simplest thing you can do. And sometimes like I'll have a patient come in and you can just see the fog. You can see the gloss. You can see that they're totally like estrogen depleted. Like they've definitely got PCOS. They've got Hashimoto's. Like you can just tell from looking at these people and like they're just so burned out. Like they don't have the capacity to take in a lot of information. So fasting is simple. It's an easy way to get them starting to feel good because all you're asking them to do is to do nothing, right? Like not do more, actually do less. And once they start feeling good, then that's when you can talk to them about, okay, now like, let's take a look at your health. Let's take a look at your diet and let's see where we can start to make improvements. So fasting, you know, a lot of times, and, and I did this too, I'd have these patients come in 
and the fog like was just all around them. They were so sick and they were so sick and tired of being sick and they yeah. just didn't have it in them to think anything would work. So going and spending like a, an hour with them to go do a deep dive through their diet and uh, their supplements, it isn't in the cards. So fasting is just something really easy to offer these people. And you don't have to scare them. Like you don't have to say you need to do three full days of fasting a week or like every other day of fasting. And they can start off simply as, hey, let's just cut out snacks and let's just try not to eat like later than seven. So that way you get a longer period fasting overnight. And it can be just that simple to start. And I think most practitioners don't realize that fasting is like a muscle. If people practice it consistently, it gets easier. So when 16 hours of fasting or even 12 hours of fasting might seem really tough, if the person does it consistently, it's going to be really easy. And I was talking, I did this maintenance webinar with our clients. So these clients, they had all reached their health goals or they were really close to reaching their health goals. And talking to them, like, Megan, do we need to go back to eating three times a day? Like, these are people who came to me, like, eating, like, 18 times a day. Yeah. And thinking that a 24-hour fast is impossible. So, but, it, like, I have these people. Can I continue to eat one meal a day? Can I continue to, like, not eat on Mondays because work's so busy? So, it is difficult at the start. But if you encourage consistency amongst your your patients, your clients, it does become really easy. And you just need to let them know that it is like a muscle. And with consistent training, it does get easier. Awesome. TJ, you want to chime in? Yeah. Well, I appreciate your description. One of my follow-up questions was, okay, so, so fasting in general probably has many different definitions and requires a lot of context, right? So yeah. there's the shorter term intermittent fasting, your example of like starting simple, which is so wise regardless of where someone's at in their health journey, always keeping it simple to start. The 7 p.m. example, like not eating past 7 p.m. Oh man, and that plays such a big role in my subjective experience in the morning when I wake up, I feel just better. And my, my objective and my recovery data, like it's... That right there is such a low-hanging fruit impact. Like just to highlight, just from my personal experience, I, I want to just kind of speak to. So I appreciate you sharing that. So there's the intermittent fasting, right? So, so shorter-term fasting, and that is we use sleep in the middle of the night to take a... We're not eating, right? So 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. would technically be a 12-hour fast. And you can also do 14, 16, 18, 24 hours. You mentioned the 24-hour fast which even a 24-hour fast, people think, oh, how can I not eat for a day? You're still eating every day because 7 p.m., like whenever it is, right? Noon to noon, it's, you're still eating, having a meal each of those days. So it sounds like you progressively get people into fasting and you have the low-hanging fruit. How do you suggest people like measure success, right? In terms of like how well this is working. And I'm also curious, like, you know, fasting isn't necessarily for everyone right? Like depending on your health conditions, depending on what's going on inside your body. So for other practitioners, like what would you suggest look out for? What important data points are important to analyze prior to doing some some bigger fasting, like the 24 hours and beyond? Those are some of my questions. Okay. So, you know, in terms of like, how do we quantify like progress with yes. an individual? So with 
that of course we want to see their waist to hip ratio go down. We definitely assess them for fatty liver disease and make sure that that is improving. So we'll look for visceral fat and where that visceral fat is. See a lot of fatty pancreases upon imaging too nowadays, and they usually correlate with low serum insulin levels. So in these individuals, we actually look to see their pancreas be able to function more and produce a little bit more insulin. So on that note, we do assess pancreatic function too and blood levels. So we do get a serum fasting insulin checked. But what we found to be more stable is the C-peptide test. And monitoring C-peptides is a more stable predictor because insulin levels tend to swing where C-peptides tend to be more stable. So like I'll have one patient she got in a car accident on the way to getting her blood work done. Her insulin like shot way up, like a hundred picomoles per liter higher than what what they were at her baseline. But her C peptides had improved, so I know that her insulin was just high that day. She said she had bad sleep, and then she got into this car accident. So she was just in a stressed out state, but her C peptides had improved. So overall, she's making progress with her fasting and with her diet. So I think C peptides is a more important like blood marker of pancreatic function. In terms of improvements with fatty liver too, we'll look at ALT. GGT, I don't find to be that stable, kind of like a fasting glucose. The ALT is a little bit more like an A1C in terms of stability mm-hmm. for how they're doing. So we would also look at their HDL to triglyceride ratio too to see where they're at at the start and see how they progress down the road. We assess inflammatory markers like high-sensitivity C-reactive protein as well to see how that's improving. Ferritin, we often, not so much in women, but in men, we see quite elevated ferritin levels, which can be a sign of inflammation. So we want to make sure that those are coming down unless there's any sort of genetic or any sort of hematological reasons why that might be elevated in those cases. So we do sort of our full blood work, looking at all of the metabolic markers and inflammatory markers at the start. And then we, we were doing follow-ups every three months in our clinic to track progress on, on those patients. And actually the most wild A1C change I ever saw was 12.3 to 5.8 over the course of three months, which was nice. pretty cool. So we test those markers to help monitor progress. Of course, we try to look at body fat and body composition as well. We spend a lot of time educating people on body composition. So actually earlier this morning, I had a former patient who's now online, who's freaking out because the scale hasn't gone down. In fact, it's gone up, but she's now feeling good. She's lost a ton of weight. She's fasting like a maniac. She's running marathons and hitting the gym every day, uh, juggling five kids. Like she's a busy, busy lady. And then I talked to her about body composition. Well, now that you mentioned that, you know, those pair of blue jeans that I couldn't fit into last month are now too big on me. Well, okay, so body fat. So we spend a lot of time educating ourselves on body composition. And I think it's really important to spend a lot of time addressing body composition with your clients. Because especially if your clients or patients are fasting, I mean, there's a potential to actually put on quite substantial lean mass when you're fasting because of counter-regulatory production of human growth hormone while you're in a fasted state. So we actually see people reverse things like osteoporosis. You know, not everyone's as active as this patient that I just mentioned, but people do put on lean mass just with their regular activities. So really focusing on body composition. So 
if you have a device that can do that at, at your clinic or at home, or if you can recommend people go for body uh, DEXA composition scans, they're a great, great tool. So I think that's really, really important, especially when you're working with a patient who says like, hey, I think I'm at my goal weight, but you still see that their A1C is like 5.8. They're still pre-diabetic and you need to try to get them to stick with this lifestyle and you don't want them dipping back into the cake mm-hmm. and the pretzels. So getting them to go for a body composition scan or learning what it is and say, oh, no, wait, you're still 33% body fat. We still have work to do. It's time to work on putting on lean mass. So I think knowing body composition and monitoring that to educate the patients is really important throughout the journey. That was a great, great answer. And wow, you just covered so many different markers to analyze and quantify to look at success. So, so that's great. The other question I had was, are there any particular like conditions or diseases or markers that you look for that might be going on that you don't want to get too aggressive with fasting? For instance, with like certain adrenal fatigues or stuff like that, like talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. So like when it comes to whether or not a a patient is eligible for fasting, so if a patient is symptomatic of any nutrient deficiencies, even if they don't look like they are, even if they look very well nourished, that doesn't mean that they don't have any nutrient deficiencies. We most commonly see this in the carbitarian population. So who had the vegetarian diet that was more like pizza and french fries, processed junk. So we see that there's a lot of vitamin B deficiencies. So with them, we'll work on improving their diet and getting supplementation where appropriate to get them into a good spot or thyroid patients. So, all right, before we start fasting with a thyroid patient, let's make sure that you're getting the support you need through either diet or supplementation to make sure you're getting adequate T4 to T3 conversion. Because the thyroid is going to experience a little bit of stress when you first start fasting. So we want to make sure that like you're getting in things like selenium and that your iron stores are good. So we'll do like a full iron panel on these people and we'll make sure that they're not symptomatic of hypo or hyperthyroidism going into a fast. So make sure their meds are adjusted, make sure supplements are adjusted and talk to them about dietary aspects that might be causing them to experience more of a bit of a flare-up that we can try to avoid when we first start fasting. So those are patients that aren't necessarily deemed not suitable for fasting, but you might want to do some pre-work with them before they're fasting. But other conditions too, you know, we don't fast anybody who has a very unknown eating disorder. We'll recommend that they get some behavioral assistance first and then come to fasting later if they're filling up for it and they've replenished any nutrient issues or any health issues that they've had have been reversed. So that's important. You know, with fasting, we're trying to limit growth, right? You know, we're trying to get into a state of autophagy where we're getting cellular recycling and and tackling things like potentially cancer. And so when a woman is pregnant or breastfeeding, like that doesn't mean all right, eat 18 times a day, like eat from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed. That's not good practice. But we would never do aggressive fasting in women who are pregnant or breastfeeding because that is a time for growth for their bodies and we will not want to interfere with those hormones. Now, any patient that someone that you're working with is 
going through is symptomatic of a medical concern and they're going through discovery to figure out what that medical concern is. We don't fast those patients because immediately everybody blames everything on the fasting. Oh, well, you're not eating. Just go home and eat. And major illnesses then don't get investigated. So we usually wait until that person has a confirmed diagnosis and who begins treatment for that condition. And unfortunately, like we've seen this happen to people and really serious conditions get undiagnosed because every practitioner they come in contact with says, oh, well, you're not eating, just go home and eat and you'll be fine. You have tummy cramps, you know, it's not cancer, it's tummy cramps, just go home and eat when it's actually something more serious. So making sure that someone is in a stable condition. Now, in terms of like metabolic patients, like we've fasted people on dialysis. We've fasted people with a history of congestive heart failure, but never like in the state where things are not stable. So people can have these chronic conditions, but as long as they're in a stable state. So you would never tell someone right after an episode of congestive heart failure to start fasting. You want to make sure that they're stabilized and then get them starting to fast or like with a dialysis patient, make sure that they've adjusted their dry weight stable, their blood pressure somewhat stable, and they've adapted before getting them into some time-restricted eating. But if you have a patient who can't do something like a 24-hour fast or a multi-day fast, that doesn't mean that they can't practice time-restricted eating, where yeah, we're, right. we're going back to the old school and just eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or lunch and dinner and not snacking. And that's what we do with a lot of the dialysis patients because their fluids are so restricted. They can't drink more than like a liter of fluid a day. So in these instances, we just focus on just cutting out the snacks. It's not that you can't eat those walnuts, but eat them with your lunch. Just don't eat them at three o'clock in the right. afternoon for the heck of it. Right. Awesome. Cool. Well, I, that's really important. I love that you covered all those different examples there. So all the coaches and doctors out there now can have a better idea of like, okay, we need to be intentional about this. Make sure all of our patients are stable before we approach this and do it in the right way. Yeah, that's a, yeah. a great set of labs that you gave, Megan. And uh, I'm sure that it's also very motivating and empowering for individuals when they can come in and, and get the baseline data done and then work with you guys over the course of weeks or months and, and see a lot of those numbers transform. So maybe you could speak to a little bit about what you see changing in the lab results as fasting is introduced and what kind of outcomes you're looking for in those numbers. And I'm going to pull a TJ here and, and tack on another question, which is like, when do you know that some, this person's not responding properly? You'll, you maybe see the labs not moving in the right direction, and there might be something deeper like a chronic infection or a genetic issue that's preventing uh, certain metabolic processes from working. So kind of a two-part question there. First of all, like, what are you looking for in the labs as a person goes mm -hmm. through, and what are kind of some of the indicators that someone may have some more detective work that needs to be done? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of lab markers that we look at, when someone's brand new to fasting, for anybody out there who's looking at this data, you need to be mindful of uric acid. Now, uric acid levels can go up when someone's fasting. It's usually a sign that they're losing too much water and too much salt. So if this is your patient or client, you need to encourage them to consume some more sodium and some more water during their fast. But we really don't see like 
see gout attacks happen unless a person has a history of gout or they have a family history of gout. They just haven't experienced it yet. So unless there's that genetic component there. But that doesn't mean that these individuals can't fast. So if you start to see uric acid levels go up, you just want to take a very gradual approach with this particular patient of yours. doesn't mean that they can't do a seven-day fast if that's what they want to do. They just need to start slowly. And some more holistic approaches like lime juice and cherry extracts can really help lower the uric acid levels. So like I have one patient who wanted to do like a really long fast and she had a history of gout and gout flare-ups. So for a week leading up to it, we incorporated lime juice, cherry extract. She utilized those as aids while doing her fast. And she was very successful without having a gout attack doing like a a month-long fast. So uric acid wants to be mindful of talking to your, your patients too to make sure that if they are on medication for gout, that they do continue to take that on their fasting days because it, they could cause a, a gout flare-up. But if, if you are nervous because this particular patient runs high in uric acid, then you would want to do a much more gradual approach. So even if they come into your office and say, hey, doc, you know, I want to do like a three-day fast. Well, your uric acid's like borderline high. Let's take a slower approach and see if you're just someone who runs high or someone that's prone to gout. And then maybe utilizing things like lime juice and the cherry root extract to help blunt the gout or the uric acid levels. So that's something we keep an eye on too. Another thing that we see often is that urea levels go up in people when they also adopt a ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. And it's usually just because they're taking more protein. So with the urea, if all of the other renal markers look normal, then we haven't noticed that to be a concern even long-term now, but it's something just to be mindful of. So making sure that you're doing a full renal panel and everything stays consistent and maybe checking that a few times in a row, just so you know, it's okay. It's a product of their diet. And I know many of my fellow low-carb practitioners like Eric Westman and Ted Nyman have noticed the same thing with just higher urea levels in more ketogenic patients taking in more protein. So that's just one thing to be mindful of. We do check thyroid function, especially we see a lot of people with Hashimoto's improve. So we're definitely checking both thyroid antibodies, but we're not relying on TSH. TSH tells us how well your pituitary gland is working, not how well your thyroid gland is working. It's a pituitary hormone. So we're really looking at free T4 and free T3 and making sure that the T4 is converting into T3 properly. We find people with Hashimoto's, they can start to become better once the inflammation is reduced or people with cellular inflammation where perhaps like the the thyroid hormones not being able to engage with the receptor due to inflammation. Once that inflammation reduces, some of these thyroid patients can become hyperthyroid. So we never really rely on the lab test alone to make adjustments to a patient's thyroid medication, but it's, it's good to check just in case the patient is not necessarily upfront or not aware that some of the symptoms they're experiencing might be due to thyroid. So if we notice that the free T3 is particularly low, you know, how are you feeling? Or if it's, it's, a bit, it's a little bit high, are you feeling a little hyper? Just so we can make adjustments to their medication. But we often find we have to reduce thyroid medication 
as the inflammation goes down. So it's always good just to have a full picture of the thyroid and seeing what's going on in there. And then I'm always very interested in monitoring that pancreatic function with the C-peptides and the fasting insulin. I check both of them. Then the C-reactive protein is a wonderful thing to check because I think it's so important. And this is why I love what you guys are doing is even from the start, like I gave my patients printouts of their lab results and we went through them together. And then I would give them like a spreadsheet of all of their lab results in the clinic back like, like old school style back in the day, because like they can see their progress and it makes them want to stick on track. So they might still be experiencing a lot of inflammation, but hey, my C-reactive proteins now like drop by 50%. Like I still have a lot of ways to go, but the data is really helpful for them seeing the inflammation. HDL triglycerides, I think are a better indicator of insulin resistance as well. So educating them about that and just healthy lifestyle habits to try to boost their HDL as well. Cool. So you mentioned a couple markers that tend to improve the inflammatory markers. You also gave some great markers to look for just in the screening process up front. But what are like the top two or three, Megan, that you would look at to say, these are the ones we really measure ourselves on. And I would imagine it's related primarily to metabolic function, or maybe it's related to like the ratios, the body composition, the waist-hip ratios. If you could pick a couple that you think these are really the KPIs that we know we can crush with our program. So waist-to-hip ratio, I think body fat would be preferred, but waist-to-hip ratio is really easy. Anyone can do it. Your patients can do it themselves at home. So like in a COVID situation, you can train them how to do it and get results. Or if they so don't how, how do you do it? Just give us a quick one-on-one. Yeah. <laughs> you just take a measuring tape and then measure your, your waist, like sort of around your, your belly or, or button. And then you would measure around the top of your hips. The widest would, part. Uh, yes, yes. So okay. you want to get the, the least, well, depending on people's perception, the least sexy or the most sexy part. <laughs> <laughs> Booty. It depends on, on your philosophy there. <laughs> yes. And, and then, you know, just in general, like just the waist measurement, you know, if your waist measurement is half of your height in inches, then you're in the clear for not having a lot of metabolic issues. So this is mm-hmm. something that your patients can easily do at home. Even if they're nervous about waist to hip, they can just simply do waist measurement as well. So just waist half the height in inches is a good target marker that people can do themselves or that you can get them to do at home when they can't come into the, the clinic. In terms of Lab markers. Before um, you leave that one, Megan, sorry for the interruption, but would you say that using the measurements actually for a lot of people from a psychological point of view is actually better than telling them to step on the scale? Are there clients where it's like, go put the scale in the closet and we're going to use the tape measure once a month? Is that a strategy that you employ or no? I hate the scale. Like, I wish our whole fasting community would come together and like, ceremoniously like break their scales i'll join the ceremony i've got actually four (laughs) scales in my bathroom because i have to test all the wireless ones so i'll (laughs) gladly smash those with you if you're doing the ritual i actually had one it's a weird like healthcare practitioners i was so misformed about like weight and health and bmi is just like the dumbest thing ever because you know, like I was like seriously fat at 97 pounds and like 38% body fat. 
And, but everyone's like, Oh, you're underweight. And I was like, no, I'm not like, I'm super fat and at risk for all kinds of diseases. Like, how can you tell me that I'm underweight? And they're like, well, your BMI is this, but it's just a weight to height ratio. Like it's nothing helpful. Like, is your weight fat or is your weight muscle like and bone mass? So I think healthcare practitioners, we need to get educated on body composition and we need to do a better job educating our our patients on it. I actually had one patient, she had literally gone from a size 18 to a size two. And like, it was a day she became super active. And then one day she had this day, she stepped on the scale and her weight was up. But that same day she wore her teenage daughter's size two jeans. And like, she fully had a breakdown. She almost went and ate a box of donuts, like thinking like she was broken, but like she had gained muscle mass. That's one of the hardest parts is the scale. It it, it messes with people's head because it's like, who even knows if those things are accurate? You also alluded to the DEXA scan. So like maybe measurements and DEXA scans like once a quarter are a better way to go. I think so too. Like, so practitioners out there, like you don't want to be doing DEXA scans all of the time. You don't want your clients to be doing them immediately after a holiday as well. Like there are idiosyncrasies with them. So when a client or a patient does carve up, that they're going to retain water and it's going to make them look like they have a lot more lean mass than they actually do. And then another caveat of DEXA scans too is like if you have a like a slender patient with a very fatty liver, and we see this all of the time, you usually more in that like patient that's had a more of an athletic background was really carving up with these sugar gel packs, you know, during marathons or triathlons and they have these like really fatty organs, uh, fatty liver. So they'll do a DEXA scan and their liver just looks huge. Right. But the liver picks that up as lean mass. And then as they start to fast, the liver loses that fat. So it's not as enlarged. And then it looks like a lean mass reduction. So you definitely don't want to be doing like DEXA scans on your patients like every month. Like a lot of healthcare practitioners have asked me, like, should I invest in one for my clinic? Well, you don't want to be scanning them every month they come into the office. Like I think every like three, four, six months. Six months is kind of how I roll. Yeah, I think it's good because then you you miss out on a lot of these bumps up and down, but you still need to be really mindful, if you're, especially if your patients have a lot of organ fat, to let them know that, hey, we're going to see a reduction in lean mass, but this is what, what it is. So we need to become really educated. Like I've been saying this for a few years now, like I hate the scale. Back in July, like we did this no scale accountability challenge in the fasting method, like awesome. how like what are they going to use to track and be accountable that week that didn't involve the scale because we've got such warped attitudes about it. Yeah. We, we interviewed one other TJ and I interviewed three health. They're a medical weight loss clinic. And, and Randy was saying she actually tells her clients to put duct tape over the readings on the scale. So it transmits wirelessly to her, but it's, <laughs> you're not allowed to see the number because it is so misleading. I'm 10 pounds heavier now than I was before I started keto three years ago, but my body composition has changed completely. It's all moved from like the stomach area to like muscle mass. So um, 
That's all really good information. I'd love TJ to chime in here with any questions he has. And then what I'd love to do, Megan, is talk more about your launch coming up. And um, it's an absolutely incredible service. So we want to give you some time to talk about that. TJ, what's coming up for you? Yeah, well, I'm more curious on the a couple sides. One, on the longer fasting. So I've done lots of 24-hour fasts. I've done a fair amount of 48-hour fasts. And I've tried to go past that a little bit. Now, from what I've heard or read and understood around the science, you talk about autophagy. If you could explain briefly to everyone like what that means and why it's valuable for performance, longevity, etc., and from what I've heard is that the longer term fast, the two to like the 48 hour and like the three to five day mark, that's when you really accelerate the autophagy. And I could be wrong. I, and I'd love your, your thoughts on that. And like, how do you go about like, what are the, the pre-qualifiers for people to enter into a two, three, four day fast and, and yeah. get into the, the science there a little bit? So great question. So autophagy uh, is a like a physiological phenomenon that they didn't even teach till I was at school, and I'm not that old. <laughs> I'm only I'll be 36 by the time this podcast airs. Um, oh. So uh, so it wasn't that long ago. But what happens is a cellular cycling process. So once your nutrient depleted state, your body will activate uh, autophagy and you'll get the breakdown of these uh, like old and damaged proteins and your body will take them apart and put together new and better functioning or fully functioning proteins and cells. So you get the cellular recycling going on, which is really amazing. It's got all these disease uh, fighting abilities potentially. We're still learning a lot more about it in human beings. One of the things that I've noticed is that we've had like tons of patients lose over a hundred pounds and not require skin removal surgery. So like they've lost like 160 pounds, 170 pounds, and they have no loose skin. And so that's autophagy, you know, breaking down that connective tissue. So it's a really cool thing because like it's hard to quantify and we certainly don't have the means in like a regular clinic to do so, but you can see it happening. So that, that's just a really awesome experience with, for autophagy that we've seen. And sorry, again, TJ, I forgot what the second question <laughs> the, the longer, the three to five days. The longer fast. Yeah. Sometimes we start a patient like in the clinic right away, like on a seven day fast we've done. And then we see them a, on a day seven. seven day, no calorie fast. Right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. Okay. Yeah. So what you have to look at? Okay. So you want to make sure that they're not in a state of hypothyroidism. If they are, chances are they're in a state of adrenal fatigue too. So you, you want to make sure that their thyroids level out and that their adrenals are supported and that all of that's good. There's no nutrient issues. But usually even in the middle of something like an RA flare-up, like the longer fast is going to be more beneficial for reducing inflammation. They're going to get greater ketone production. It's going to help a lot get them out of that flare-up. So there are very few circumstances where we would recommend that someone hold off on doing a five-day or three-day fast. Another one that I would say hold off is if they've recently, for some reason, become extremely dehydrated. So, you know, maybe bad food poisoning or, or something that depleted yep. their system. But if they're diabetic or hypertensive, you just need to be mindful of their medications. Now, usually like a three or five day fast for a hypertensive patient, you're not going to see their blood pressure come down that rapidly that you might need to adjust any antihypertensives. But with 
or diabetic medications, you do want to be more mindful. So like insulin, of course, you want to adjust that to make sure the person doesn't become hypo. You still fall on your areas. You definitely want to try to adjust those because it'll stimulate the pancreas to produce insulin, which can make them hypoglycemic. Another class you might want to be mindful of is SGLT2 inhibitors. So the ones that cause you to urinate out the glucose, so like in Volcana, Jardians, Farsiga, we call it Forsiga in Canada. You might want to cut those out or substitute them for something else. Metformin, we found that you know 50% of the population can take it during a fast without GI upset. The other 50% can't. So if you're going to recommend a longer fast to your patient, I mean, the metformin doesn't do a whole lot for you if you're not eating anyways. So it might be advisable just to cut it out on the fasting days to reduce any risks of becoming dehydrated. But prep for a three to five day fast will make sure that they're getting in adequate sodium, electrolytes, fat going into the fast. And then we educate uh, patients a lot, especially during the first few days of a fast, as their insulin levels drop and they're urinating out a lot, losing a lot of water, they're losing a lot of electrolytes too. So most people think during extended fasting, they don't need to worry about electrolytes till later on in the fast, when it's actually earlier on in the fast that you're at the most risk for dehydration. So saying, okay, like, don't wait till you feel like garbage to try to get your salt in, you know, start on day one. So that way, like day four, you're feeling awesome and you're not dragging your feet. So we talk a lot about how much salt we look at the person. What are they craving in terms of salt? What are their other health conditions, medications? And then try to give them some baseline guidelines for consuming salt. It's usually around one and a half teaspoons a day. But if they're really active, like I've fasted some pro athletes, like they can take upwards to a tablespoon of salt throughout the day while fasting, magnesium. And then we look at their renal function adrenal function and medications to see whether or not they may need potassium supplementation or not. Love it. Love it. And and the electrolytes, the hydration is such an important piece and it's beyond right just consuming high quality water, but specific electrolytes, like you said, the sodium, potassium, magnesium. I actually went to the emergency room for dehydration. So that's a part of my background and story. I know what that's like. I learned that the hard way. And even myself now, like when I'm intentional about properly electrolyting and hydrating in the morning, I'm not as hungry and it supports me with fasting. So, you know, you probably help clients inside your program realize that a lot of times they might think they're hungry, but really they're thirsty. Yeah. Kind of quelch their hunger signals. So, does the science say that the benefits of the autophagy does that happen a lot more at day three and beyond than, say, like a 24 or 48 hour? Yeah, so autophagy sort of peaks in its action around the 72-hour mark, and it stays relatively active for the first five days of a fast. So for us, a lot of the reason why people want to experience autophagy is to tackle loose skin or prevent loose skin from happening because a lot of our patients are looking to lose substantial amounts of weight. So we'll do a three- to five-day fast, you know, maybe every couple of months, every few months, depending on what the patient wants to do, just to help get that. And we find it makes a world of difference for them. So some people do cycle it once a month, once every few months too, can still get some great benefits. 
Dave, let's try a three-day fast together sometime. <laughs> well, we, we could do it. I mean, internally, we'd love to do it. We're all data nerds here, so we would quantify yep. the shit out of it. And I think that'd be super fun. But um, a couple of questions here, just in, in closing, Megan. What I love about the work you're doing is it's very quantified and very objectively driven. This is not something where you're just prescribing this without making sure that you are properly remotely monitoring, which I think is extremely exciting. And you've been doing this for so long that you know a lot of the markers to look for. That's why we're excited about the partnership between our companies, because I think we can provide some ways for individuals to see all of this information themselves. Also for you guys doing the remote monitoring. And what's exciting for me is that you've been able to use technology to be able to scale your ability to deliver these services to more people by doing it remote, by bringing in remote monitoring technology, by bringing in community and education. And it's a really incredibly scalable approach to fasting, which I think is really quite pioneering. So if you wouldn't mind, just share what you guys are birthing into the world here with, with the fasting method. And it's amazing, I, I think, how you're, you're providing this at scale and using the latest technology to do this safely and teaching people how to fish by looking at their own numbers. And then also giving your clinic the data on the back end to say that this works and we've got all the numbers here to prove it. So I'd, I'd love if you could just share on how you're planning to scale this out. It's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So for us, this is a hard challenge to tackle, right? Because there's no one size fits all fasting approach, totally. or dietary approach. So how do we do that? And how do we still bring our knowledge and how to customize it to individuals all over the world and be able to scale Different it conditions. up so much? They're coming in with every, some of them are probably just looking to lose weight. Some of them are coming in with very serious medical conditions. So you guys are getting everything thrown at you. <laughs> yeah, literally, <laughs> quite literally. Everything. And you're building a technology platform and scaling a business and uh, all the other good stuff that goes along with it. Yeah, so this is where I think the data is so important. So you need to teach people to understand their data. And if you want people to make change, they need to understand their data. So this is where our collaboration with you guys and having our health tracking at the fasting method powered by Heads Up Health is so important. And having it all in one place so people can see it all in one spot and make sense of it all. Because if you're jumping around from a carb app to a ketone app to a weight app, like you're not seeing it all in one shot, in one picture. So it makes it harder to connect the dots. So what we're trying to do with the fasting method is teach people how to make fasting fit for them, not just follow this protocol or that protocol and just hope that it works. And if it doesn't too bad, okay, here's how you can use the data to help guide you in terms of what you need to do to optimize your health, to reach your health goals and to get them to actually make behavior change. They need to see the data. Like for me, my first month of fasting, gosh, like it sucked. Like I ate like 20 times a day. So like going to fast was tough. But man, seeing my A1C come down so much in a month, seeing my C-reactive protein, you know, checking my glucose, like device like a Keto Mojo and seeing that, okay, hey, after I eat, two hours later, my blood sugar levels are coming down. 
at a like much faster pace than they used to would say hi for like three or four hours. Like that was so motivating for me. And then like two months into it, fasting became easy and yeah. it was fine. But seeing that data like shape my behaviors, like I still to this day, I wear a Dexcom because it's just so amazing to me how things like stress and poor sleep can really affect my health despite my good diet and yep. my good fasting. Yep. So I want our clients to not just learn how to do fasting to reach their goals. I want to change habits. And this this fits into a bigger picture too. Like if we can create this, this army of people that have modified their habits, we're going to put pressure on the industries, you know, to help make things. Like, and just look over the last several years at the popular, like there's so many bone broth options commercially now. Oh, no Whereas like yeah. seven years ago, there was nothing. You had to make it at home. So I think that this is cool. I think that we're going to see this data help people and they can already see it in our, in our community. Like prior to the, the launch is that people who track their own data made sustainable changes to their lifestyle. They modify their habits and they stuck with it and it helped them get through those stickier periods, you know, where cake was tempting or fasting seemed hard. So now that we're making that accessible to everybody with the help of you guys, I think we're going to be able to get a lot greater outcomes. And in terms of having healthcare practitioners, I mean, being able to see this data helps us so much. So like if I go in and I see that there's certain areas where people are struggling, you know, I can provide education, resources, support for that. Or like one of our health coaches can see that, okay, this person's uric acid level is rising because I just identified in the community that they're doing a seven-day fast. So let me reach out to them and say, okay, let's start doing these health integrations to make that fast successful. Well, you just touched on it because everything's in one container. So your coaches can see the data and then they also have a connection to them through the community. So besides the data platform... What else is part of the service? I really love how this is very holistic. So can you share on the community and the education and and that part of it? Yeah, absolutely. So with the combination of you guys and what we what we had and what we've been developing, we have a one-stop shop, I think, for people that are just looking to come into one place and get the support they need. So we have all of the fasting and eating education and all of the resources that people would fly in from all over the world to get from Jason and I in person. So that education, those frequently asked questions, those downloadable... It's a huge body of work. Yeah, (laughs) it really has been. They can get that there. And then we have support groups. So like people can actually interact. And it's cool to see because people all over the world become friends and they go on vacations. That's That's so cool. I love that part of it. Yeah, so when we got these fasting challenges that we make them suitable for everybody, whether you're new to fasting or not, we really focus more on behavior modification during that. It's good for whatever stage you are in your fasting journey. So we've got um, all of the education, all of the like live interactive support from our fasting experts. We have the community aspect of it too. And now like you guys are on our, our fourth pillar, you know, between like education, community and resources, we have health tracking and you guys have a, a wonderful health tracker in your program too. So they can come in. It's a one-stop shop for everything, which should make fasting more easy. If they've got I all of the it. tools there in one chest, it hopefully should increase their success. Yeah. You know, TJ's a beer changes his 
area of expertise. Love it. Sustainable. (laughs) Yeah, you're you're building a community around this. It's not just me trying to do it myself and my doctor or my healthcare professional guiding me. I have other people that are going through this together. And that makes it really powerful, combined with the body of work from yourself and Jason over decades, and then having the quantification in there. So it sounds fantastic, Megan. Congrats on everything you guys have put together. Well, thank you. I mean, we've been navigating this. They've gone down different. Do we do it more in clinics? Do we do it more online? No, people need online support. And then just growing that and recognizing what we need and being able to collaborate with awesome people like yourselves with great products that help not just the clients and the patients, but help us better serve them. And then to see what we're doing, to see what, hey, what's really working here? What's giving us the best results too? Well, we're both just trying to be of service and to help people (laughs) transform their health. I've been seeing you at conferences for like, I don't even know how many years as we've both just kind of been evolving our our missions here. So um, it's been a pleasure to work with you and much more to come. TJ, is there anything else you want to chime in on here as we're winding down? Yeah, I'm grateful to be working with you all and and the one-stop shop, like you said, you you really support people with community, with the education, the the data tracking and, and your point around how the data can serve as a feedback loop for the behavior change, right? So lifestyle change impacts objective data and or doesn't and the data doesn't lie. And, and when you can correlate it that way, and it sounds like you guys really take a really an intentional coach approach. You have a bunch of coaches on your staff. So you're, you're not just like teaching and telling people what to do. You're also empowering and inspiring. And, and that's so important. So we're just so grateful to be working with you. It's an honor to interview you all today. And we're excited for your, your new launch. Yeah, thank you. Hey, fasting. We've got lots of information, free information out there too on our blog. Cool. So if you're someone who's just new to listening to this, I would head over. Jason Fung's written like 12,000 blogs. I don't even no. So there's a lot of We'll link to those in the show notes for sure. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes. So let's say I'm a practitioner, Megan, and I'm listening to this and I want to eat the dog food before I, I serve it to my <laughs> patients. Or if I'm just a regular person listening to this and I want to do fasting and it sounds so much more exciting if I'm part of a community, then how does one plug in to your work? Yeah. So over at thefastingmethod.com, you can join. There's a free trial period of one week and you can actually subscribe to it using FSA and it's HSA as like health spending account. Oh, nice. Which I, as a Canadian, I'm just starting to learn about. I'm actually moving to San Francisco next year. So I imagine Ooh. I'll learn a lot about it next year. You're moving um, to SF? Yeah. That is exciting. <laughs> I lived there for 10 years. It is a really, really incredible spot. My husband's from there, so he's convinced me to move. Oh, uh, you'll love it. Love it's it it's SF. It's the Toronto of the uh, United States. You'll love it. That's <laughs> <laughs> a great, great time. But you can, yeah, so you can use uh, these health spending accounts too, which is pretty cool. And just go in if you're a healthcare practitioner and you're new, jump into the education. Uh, we do have expert series videos too, oh, where cool. we break down so more of the science. Can learn. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So uh, cool. practitioners, there's resources for you. If you want to get educated and you want to start using this in your practice, you can also eat the dog food and join Megan's program and go <laughs> through it yourself. Any good practitioner should eat the dog food, I think, on everything. That's why I've got <laughs> 20 devices on my desk and test everything. So if you want to 
go through it firsthand and, and be part of the program, this is probably a great spot for practitioners to go learn and uh, familiarize themselves and figure out how they'd want to roll it out. So um, this was awesome. Yeah. Megan, anything else you want to say in closing here? You know, fasting can be as simple as just not eating between meals. I so, you know, you don't have to get hung up on these multi-day fasts that you might hear people talking about. Not snacking reaps huge health benefits. So you can start off small. And yeah, and I think in terms of health practitioners, actually, fun fact, 28% of the people in our program are health practitioners, either wow. doctors or nurses or other. 28%. Yeah. Wow. So that's uh, up for the end of July data. So there's a lot of people in there that are interested in learning, not just for themselves to get to their health goals, but to learn to help spread the knowledge as well to their communities too. So it's a supportive environment. We really do our best to keep it positive and to keep it educational. That's a huge number of people who are in there as as practitioners, like you said, first learning it for themselves and then probably sharing amongst each other as professionals too, I I would imagine, about what's working and what isn't. So there's a, there's a community there within the community, it sounds like. Yeah, there is. But it's really great to see everyone interact and to share and to grow together. Right on. Well, keep rocking, Megan. Thank you for all the great work you do, <laughs> TJ. Uh, always a pleasure to have you as the co-host with me here, sir. And with that, we'll sign off. Thanks, Megan, for your time today. No problem. Thanks, guys. Happy fasting, everybody. That's great. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Data Driven Health Radio. 